This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Shattered Lives. I'm Paul Healy, Chief Reporter with the Irish Daily Star. Today, the Star's crime correspondent Michael O'Toole speaks exclusively to former Garda Assistant Commissioner Michael O'Sullivan. It's a wide-ranging and fascinating chat exploring Mr O'Sullivan's illustrious career with Angarda Siakana, from the arrest of Godfather Christy Kinahan to his days chasing heroin kingpins in Dublin in the 1980s. You'll also get to hear the former Top Garda's view on the kinahan hutch feud, the lack of a Garda presence at the Regency Hotel, and his thoughts on what fate may be in store for mob boss Daniel Kinahan. Michael O'Sullivan, thanks for joining us on another edition of Shattered Lives. Today, you spoke to us last week uh, for a small moment about your uh, interactions with Cornelius Price, who, as we know, died. But there is much more to your story than Cornelius Price. So before we start getting into uh, drilling down this, would you mind just filling us in on your career? You res- retired as a Garda Assistant Commissioner. I think that was in 2016, was it? 2017, yeah. 2017. So you spent 40 years in the Guards? Yeah, I spent 40 years in the Guards. That's right, yes. And, and most of that would have been, if I'm right, in the serious and organised crime field. Yeah, most of it was really as a detective. I was a, I was a detective in the drug squad. I was a detective sergeant in the drug squad. I was later a, de- a detective inspector, detective superintendent. Then I was in charge of it as a detective chief. So most of my service is in specialised units as a, as, a, as a detective, really. And may I, why was that? What, what drew you to that field? Was it voluntary or were you put into it? I suppose I had, a, I had an interest in it. You've got to understand in the guards, some people want to stay in traffic and they like that sort of stuff. Some people want to stay in particular stations. Some people want to stay in a particular, there's a great variety in the guards, in a particular role within the guards. A, a lot of people don't go towards drugs for various reasons. And um, I, in my very early career, got involved in drugs uh, almost by a back door. Um, and um, from that, I had a strong interest in it. I suppose you could say I had a flair for it, but I liked, I liked the challenge in it. I liked the work. Again, a lot of people don't want to be searching houses with drug addicts and syringes and working in back streets and, you know, long hours of surveillance. It's not, you know, it's not like the movies. It's you could spend countless hours, weeks on surveillance and nothing would happen and the job wouldn't go right. So it's, it's horses for courses, really. And what was there something that drew was it as you was it the challenge? Was it was it exciting? I presume it was exciting doing all stakeouts and you know, following. Yeah, that look, it thing. sounds stakeouts aren't exciting. It sounds you know, it's exciting when something happens, but does it, it can be quite monotonous, it's and quite challenging. 
you could spend hours following people and hours interviewing people and hours preparing evidence. And, you know, it is not all that glamorous. It's good when a job comes together. But it, it really, you know, a steakhouse, a stakeout is all very nice, but you sit on a roof for six or seven hours a day for several days of the week or places like that, you know, it gets quite um, monotonous and there's easier ways of working. I liked the work, however. I liked the challenge. I liked the people I worked with. And I, I probably came there at a particular time. I came to drugs when heroin was taking off right at the very start. And I probably my career probably took off with it and I stayed in that um, vein of um, drug dealing and drug importation and I developed a skill set for it and I, you know, I was drawn towards that work. But like I say, a lot of people would run a mile from it. Now, um, one of the reasons why we're talking to you is over the next couple of weeks, Sky, I believe, are running a show called Dublin Narcos, which is a history of, of basically of the drugs crime epidemic in the Dublin area. And you're one of the major and important guests on that show. Why did you decide to take part in that? Well, they came to me. They, they, they read a book that was published about, about 30 years ago about the drug problem. It, it was actually published and it libeled a number of people and then it was withdrawn. So they got a copy of it and they decided that they ran series like... Um, they, uh, Liverpool Narcos, they called it, and then London Narcos, and then they decided to do a Dublin Narcos, and they asked me would I participate in it, and I said I would, so I did, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. And did you enjoy taking part in it? Um, again, it took a lot of, not particularly, nothing wrong with the people, but there's a lot of hanging around and taking takes and sitting in a seat, and it's not like, okay, there's a 20-minute interview, it could take the whole day, and they might take three minutes of an interview. So it was an, it was an eye opener as to how they operated. And um, I didn't mind taking now, part in it. It told a particular story and I, I was happy to be part of it, yeah. Now, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm guessing that one of the words that will be used quite a lot in the show is the word of mockies. You were a mocky and they have almost a legendary status within Angarda Shia and probably outside the Garda Shia Khan as well. Would you just tell us, remind us what mockies were? Yeah, I suppose it, it stems from around 82. I, I, I got involved in, in, in the whole drugs investigation and I put forward a suggestion that in an effort to catch these drug dealers, the drug dealers had changed tack, gone to the days that you'd knock on the door at 7 a.m. and the drugs would be sitting under the bed or whatever. You're dealing with heroin. It's a fast-moving, very secretive process. And it was sold in the inner city in the early 80s. And it was sold from flat complexes. And many of the people who sold it were hardened criminals. And to get into some of these flat complexes was like a fortress. The drug squad at the time and the guards at the time basically were still working on an old process, which was get a warrant and knock on the door and see where the drugs there. And sometimes they were looking, sometimes they weren't. But the drug problem and the heroin problem in the 80s was a whole different ballgame. I had suggested that the only way it could be done, having looked at it, was that somebody would go up and pose as a drug addict and, and, and buy the drugs. So I put forward the suggestion to some of the senior managers and they didn't like it and they thought it was, it bordered on being illegal. 
and basically crazy and basically quite dangerous. So they said it couldn't be done and you can't do it. So despite my protests to say, look, it's the only way we're going to get these people, these guys, and these, et cetera, I was wasting my time. So myself and a couple of friends within the guards, I suggested we'd go and try it. So we did. And um, the rest is history. I went and knocked on a door. And, you know, when I knocked on the door, I didn't even know what heroin looked like. So it was the lack of training we would have had. I knocked on the door and um, a guy came to the door and I, I asked him for drugs and he produced the drugs and at the door. I was on my own standing there. And in fact, looking back, and he was a huge big guy at the time. And um, anyway, I, I saw the drugs and then I took out my ID card and told him I was a guard. It took a couple of minutes for him to believe it. And then when he realized I was serious, he tried to close the door. Anyway, the, I, I went in the door after him and he threw it into the fire. And I took it back out of the fire while he was climbing out the back window. He was, it was on a ground floor flat. So I was hanging on to his leg and at the same time trying to hang on to the drugs and hoping somebody could find me but lucky enough got assistance so that the unit that nucleus of a couple of people who started off worked together at this at this undercover pioneering type operation of doing surveillance and going to doors and going to dealers in the streets and in the back alleys and in the parks and buying drugs and then in a covert fashion and then trying to arrest them. And um, in, in, this, in the street parlance, I suppose, of Dublin, somebody christened us Mockies because we were mock addicts and the name just stuck. And we worked at that, myself and five others. We worked at that um, for several years with, with quite a lot of success. So are you? So was that the first ever? I don't know. Which, not a controlled delivery, but the, the first ever undercover purchase by a guard in Dublin. You'd be aware of. There's, there's no doubt. It was the first undercover. It, it happened actually in May of 1982, and it was the first ever undercover purchase of drugs. In fact, at the time we were told the case wouldn't hold, that it was something they called entrapment, which I knew nothing about, and um, they said, "Look, it's never going to stick." And they basically said it couldn't be done, and it did stick, and it stuck for countless more cases. And the, the judiciary were happy with it. You know, it it was, it was legal, perfectly legal. It just hadn't been tried. But yes, it was the first one. And obviously, management changed their mind about it. Then it took them a long time because we got into a lot of trouble at the start, and we were told not to continue it. But we knew it was right, and we knew the courts had hold, and. Um, We'd, 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 uh, you know, you can't blame management so much. They have a, it's a, the guards are very disciplined, strict processes. And if they don't have a plan laid down, that if they, if they can't, they, and the whole concept, sure, we had people at the time for surveillance, but at the whole concept of what they would call a test purchase or buying drugs was unheard of. So if we hadn't got rules and regulations for it, and we hadn't got training for it, and it wasn't in the policy, well, then there was obviously a good reason that it wasn't in the policy because somebody must, somebody somewhere must have decided that's crazy stuff. You can't do that. And so there was a lot of, um, I'd say, friction, a lot of, a lot of challenging with management. Some management were more progressive, more junior managers thought, look, this is working. And the courts will hold it. 
more senior, more conservative managers said, well, it didn't happen in my day, so it shouldn't happen. And why can't they? The, you see, the guards hadn't got an understanding of how heroin dealing was done. And that was the, and senior management hadn't. And it was trying to convince them, which was very difficult. And they were very much rules bound. But look, with the passage of time and, and, and the support of a couple of junior managers, the likes of inspectors who said, look, keep going, you're okay. And um, we kept going and what we were doing was perfectly legal and very successful and certainly achieved its aims, yeah. How bad was the, we always hear about this, but how bad was the heroin, specifically heroin problem in Dublin in the early 80s? Do you know there was a, there was a report carried out, and I just can't remember the name of it, but it, it compared the number of heroin addicts in Dublin city. It was greater than a per head of the population, a than a corresponding New York ghetto. So basically what they were saying was per head of the population in these in the inner city and it was nearly always focused in the inner city in the flat complexes it was huge it was just huge and you look back and you look back at the deaths and you know three four five people in a family dying from heroin overdoses it was just ravaged you know it it, it was brought in by the duns young people saw maybe escapism in it it just was a it was a release they didn't believe they would get hooked on it, and the the the, it, the corresponding effect was the the violence and the crime rate rising. It was just, you know, they use the term epidemic. Was it an epidemic? It was absolutely an epidemic. The, the place was going crazy with it. Yeah, and that lasted several years, and we're still seeing the effects of it. We still have quite a number of heroin addicts in 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 the country now. At the time, for the first couple of years, from about eighty two. To, I'd say, about 87, 88, you couldn't get heroin outside of Dublin City. You couldn't get it in Cork. A guy would have to come up on a train and buy a couple of grams and bring it back down. You wouldn't get dealing. You wouldn't get dealing in small towns. And I remember being stationed in Galway in 2012 and seeing there was, there was Latvian guys arrested in Galway selling heroin on the street, you know. So that's how far it had come. You know, you would just... It just show it mushrooms. That's the way, that's the way heroin is. Unlike other drugs... It just mushrooms. Okay, so as you say, you, you, as we did say, you, you got the, the rank of assistant commissioner. So you went from guard, a sergeant, inspector, superintendent, chief superintendent, assistant commissioner. Did you have a favourite rank? Uh, I suppose, look, I liked, I liked what I worked at. I suppose the best, most, yeah, the one I would take greater satisfaction of was working as a guard, as a detective. It was, it was less, you know, when you become manager, it's a different world. It's a different ball game and you're less operational and you're, you have to do a certain amount of administration. So it was, I, I preferred when you were on the street working. It was, it was, it was, I thought it was a great, greater job satisfaction rather than getting promoted, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. So uh, when you're a detective sergeant, I believe that would be, have been your first interaction with a man called Christopher Kinnan. Actually, I, no, it wasn't. It was just before I, I was still a detective when I met Chris Kinnan. Okay, so uh, Christy Kinnan is, is, of course, famous around the world for the, the drugs cartel that bears his name. What, what are your memories of him? Can you talk to us about your first interactions with him? Yeah, Chris Kinnan wasn't very famous when I came across him. Chris Kinnan was a fraudster and not really known to the police, a low-level type criminal, a bit of a chancer, and had nothing to do 
had, had, had nothing to do with, with drugs at that time. And he saw the opportunity in the 80s. He saw the profits being made. I mean, it's like the number of addicts running around, robbing jewellery, robbing houses, robbing people, and the amount of money coming into dealers and the amount of money being made on heroin was phenomenal. And he saw that. And he was, a, he was very strategic. And he was an opportunist. And he decided he would be the silent partner because he knew nothing about the drugs business. And, you know, to be successful in the drugs business, in the heroin business in particular, you've got to know what you're doing. And um, but he took one better. He he stepped back and um, set himself up as the person at the top of the pyramid, basically, and had people supplying. He set himself up really to be the sole supplier for Dublin City. And he almost succeeded. He, he set himself up in a luxury apartment and nobody knew him. Nobody really knew him. And certainly nobody in the drugs business knew him. And his plan was to be under the radar and to have wholesalers. He was like the managing director. And he'd have wholesalers distributing the heroin to the street dealers in the city. And he was cornering the entire market. And did the other dealers have anything to say about that? I'm sure they did. Um, well, if they had anything to say, they didn't know it was him. And what they you see, the way it is with the heroin business, it's different. It's, it's very mercenary. Whosoever sells the best heroin and is available, people will buy it. And heroin is such a fluid type of drug from the point of view. One minute a guy is selling it for three days and, and he mightn't have it for a month. And it goes so quickly. And it depends not just on the supply and demand, but, but it depends on your supply. How much weight, as in ounces, kilos at times, can you buy? How much can you afford to buy? And how long can you keep the customer base satisfied? So people could run for a week. So it, it is basically quite disorganized in the city. Whoever was on the ground with the heroin got to sell it. And it wasn't as organized like it could be now that people said, well, you can't sell here, you can't sell there. Uh, if people, if somebody was selling heroin, people went to them. And if the heroin wasn't too bad, if it was rip off heroin, like they could cut the heroin down to 10%, 15%, people wouldn't get a hit. So they wouldn't, the word would be out, don't go to that guy. So he would, he was selling good heroin at good prices throughout the entire city, but nobody know, knew he was selling it. And because there was three or four layers and firewalls protecting him. So that's, and he was making a lot of money at it at the time. And how did you, you arrested him? Was it in 87? It was September of about 87, 86, 87. Or just to mark, yeah, I think it was, yeah, 86, 87. And he was, I think, was it in Clontarf? He was living in a posh apartment complex in Clontarf. If I he, was, he was living in a posh complex and um, myself and, and the, the crew, uh, Noreen Sullivan and a couple of others, arrested him um, in that apartment. He was quite surprised. And was there anything found in the apartment? There were several ounces of heroin in the apartment, not, not concealed because there was no need to conceal it because it was a safe apartment. And he was there with an Algerian guy. So you got him. Was he surprised? Yeah, he was quite surprised. He was, he, he was very shocked. Yeah, absolutely. It was, a, it was a big surprise to him. Now, look, you, you've, you've arrested probably hundreds, thousands of criminals. Did they all react the same way? Did some get violent? Did some shrug their shoulders? What, what did he do? You know, what did he do? He was, if I, he, he, he was stunned, really. He, he just, he was sitting down. If I remember correctly, eating a sandwich 
and he stopped as we came through the door and he just he was he was just sick he was shocked he was just shocked he was just he was dumbfounded i guess and he was convicted of that i believe yeah i think you remember six or seven years yeah yeah and then he also then he came out and then he got done for check fraud you mentioned at the start that he was into that sort of thing and then yeah. he got out i think in the early 90s yeah that's correct he did yeah so between the early 90s and 2010, shall we say, he metamorphosized into effectively Ireland's biggest drugs boss. How did he do it? I guess there's a number of reasons. He was lucky. He was very strategic in the way he operated. He, he always, he taught outside the box a lot. Now, I'm not saying he's the smartest guy in the world. He was caught two or three times. I think he was very lucky. He, he went to Holland if I remember correctly, he did a stretch over there. But he went to Holland anyway, and he met up with people there. He, he left Ireland where it's very parochial and a very closed market. He went to this nest of drug dealers. I mean, say Holland, Holland, because of their liberal laws, rapidly became a who's who for every sort of a drug trafficker. There was Colombians, there was Dutch, there were Russians, you name it. There were Moroccans. It was a who's who. So he arrived over there and he made a lot of criminal contacts. And he realized he still had that main aim, being the silent partner, being the partner, being the head of the pyramid. And he realized he could supply the Irish market. In fact, he could supply several markets. And um, I guess when he was in, you know, when he gets to Holland, the Dutch have they're filled of criminals. They've loads of criminals. And he's just another guy, you know. Ireland was too small. And his cards were marked. So he worked at what he worked at. And he worked uh, um, He worked a number of good um, enterprises and developed money and met people who supported him and worked with him in the criminal organization and it developed from that so that the, the more you went up the, the the ladder in the drugs unit and the garden national drugs unit and what became the drugs and organized crime bureau you probably would have had more of an overview would it be fair to say that as you went up the ladder he went up the parallel ladder in criminality until he was one of the major criminals in ireland and europe yeah i guess so it's just that we both stayed in the drugs business I suppose, for 40 years. Parallel, I guess. Were you surprised looking back? Do you think, okay, yeah, I can see why he got there. I, I, am, I can see how he could be successful. I didn't think he would be as successful as he was. But I suppose nobody featured in. If he stayed in the heroin business, it may not have been as lucrative. Nobody saw cocaine being as as popular as it as it has been for the last 10 years or so and you know like i remember 82 83 in a whole year if there was two grams worth of cocaine seized that's all whereas cocaine has revolutionized criminal gangs and has revolutionized cartels and people hit on this market of getting coke from south america to a massive market, a massive consumer base. Like currently, I think the estimate is the cocaine market alone for Europe is 13 billion, one three. So 
you know, so nobody saw, nobody saw the drugs business becoming so global. But then everything became global. You know, the world became a smaller place from the 80s up to now. And back in the day, it was a big deal for a guy to get a contact in London to get bring heroin back. And then maybe the Netherlands, like half the half the guys in Dublin didn't know where Colombia was or South America and didn't and wouldn't have a contact. Whereas once you make those contacts at a global level, once you have people who know a man here or a man there, those production lines, those processes um, become quite efficient. If you talk to your man in Bogota and he talks to your man in Holland and you talk to a fisherman somewhere else and before you know it, you've got you've got millions of euros worth of coke and it makes so a lot of people very rich. And Christy Kinnan and the Kinnan cartel are extremely rich people. They are an extremely rich guy. Yeah, yeah, they're extremely rich, yeah. Were you surprised, And because you left in 2017, so that was at the height of what became known as the Kinnan Hutch feud. Were you surprised by the f- development of the feud? I have to say, I, I was. I was at the start of it. I went. I was at the Regency and was part of a, an investigation team in February of 2016, I think it was. And so mm-hmm. I was around for that and I was part of the early investigations into the murders. And um, I was surprised at how fast and how reckless things became. It was just... As somebody said, you know, it, it, it was a, a feud on steroids. It was just no rhyme nor reason. This was crazy stuff. And this was, you know, this is just crazy stuff. I, I was very, I think everyone was surprised at the ferocity and viciousness and the pointlessness of what went on. Yeah. Crazy. Have you been able to, ration, have you been able to rationalize why? I mean, let's be honest, it was the cartel, the Kinahan cartel, which was doing most of the actions and killings and attempted murders. What, what, what is your rationale for their ferocity? The people behind the deaths did it because they could. Did it because, I think, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And they had so much money and they had so much power that they thought, these are guys, the people responsible are guys who believe their own propaganda. And off they went and did what they did. So you, you, you might not want to name him, but I can. You're talking about Daniel Kinahan there, really, aren't you? Well, whoever, and I, I, I don't want to preempt anything, but whosoever was behind it and the grouping behind it, that's my, um, that's my theory on why they did what they did. Do, do you think if... Uh, Christy Kinnan had been at the helm or running things or had been in control, it would have gone the same way? Or would it be, be a wiser head? I think more sensible people in the group would have said, you can't do this. You can't do this on a number of levels. You can't do this for, for, for all of the reasons, the humanitarian reasons for starters. Um, you cannot go taking lives like that. Leave that. That's, that's one side of it. But from a business perspective, you can't run around like Al Capone and not draw attention to yourself. The more successful groupings are the people who are selling drugs, who are behind crime and are keeping their head down. 
They're not drawing attention to themselves. You do that sort of stuff and you will draw the attention of law enforcement. And that's what happened. And I, I, this is my contention. I don't know what you think. I'd be interested in your view on this. I think in 2016 and 2017, particularly 2016 after the Regency, the, the cartel, the Kinnan cartel, in my opinion, was a direct threat to the authority of the state. Would you, would you agree with that? I think, yeah, well, yes, I would agree. I would, I would agree that, that the cartel didn't care about law enforcement, didn't care about the state, didn't care about the guards, the government, and certainly didn't care about the victims. The power had gone, the people behind it, the power had gone to their heads and they just thought they can do anything. And Michael, as we know, the cartel leaders, the alleged cartel leaders have been sanctioned. There are rewards of $15 million by the Americans. What yeah. do you think, with your vast experience and knowledge, the end game is here? Well, I'll put it to you this way. The DEA are on the trail of that cartel and nobody has yet outran the DEA and they're in it for the long haul. The DEA have, you just have to look back, Chapo Guzman, um, I think they caught him not once but twice, if not three times, I think when he escaped. You look, if you have to go back to Escobar, you know, you look at their track record for breaking cartels, for arresting government officials who are corrupt all over the globe, and they have a huge global reach. The world becomes a smaller place when the DEA are on your trail. So, so they're in trouble? Yeah, they're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Michael, just the last question on the Regency. I remember uh, the then Commissioner Noreen O'Sullivan said afterwards, because there was, I mean, we can't again say this, there was uh, criticism of the Guardi Shikana after it, and she insisted, especially for not having any Guardi there, she insisted that there was no intelligence of anything happening at the Regency. Yeah, you see, I suppose you look back at the criticism, but one of the criticisms that I, I remember being at a conference and, and uh, one of the one of the several murder conferences and people people wanted results and they wanted results. You know, investigations take time. And, it, it, and when you look now at back at what happened at the Regency and the unfortunate deaths following the Regency, the guards went and did the heavy lifting and you look at the successful track records record of arresting the perpetrators for most if not all of the murders and, and, and i've sort of lost track of them at this stage but any one of those murders was extreme you had hit teams going out shooting somebody a car was burnt within five minutes and everybody was gone and then the guards had to pick up the pieces they have a, they have the track record of being exceptionally successful in their investigations following those deaths. Now, back to what you said about the intelligence. Look, intelligence, I, I was in the drugs, I was the chief in drugs and organized crime at the time. Look, you deploy resources, the scant resources you have, you deploy them to where you know illegal activity is going to happen. And the purpose is apprehend the people doing the illegal activity. If a couple of guys are flying over and they're going to have a handover and you know this is going to happen, you would deploy resources because this is going to be an illegal act and there's a possibility of getting seizing drugs and arresting people. 
and you gear your strategy on that. If a bunch of them are coming over to go to a 21st party, you're not going to put what what is the purpose in putting a surveillance team out there? One, even leaving aside not getting blown. What is the purpose? They're going to be hanging around looking at the guys getting drunk. You know, it's about the legal and the illegal uh, the illegal activity. Criminal groups do lots of different activities and we've lots of criminal gangs and they do lots of different activities. And you have to gear your resources to when they do the illegal activities. So people meeting for a weigh-in is no different than the people going down to the point to watch a, bo a boxing match or the people going to a session or the people going to a concert. You know, no, what you need to do is deploy the resources to the potential illegal act which your intelligence relates to. Back to the Regency, nobody thought anything was going to happen at the Regency, least of all the Kenans. And a handful of people knew this was a surprise attack at the Regency. It could have happened in O'Connell Street. It could have happened. It could have happened as they drove from the airport. Yeah, and, and, and as I say, the Kinnahans were as surprised as anyone, as the guards were. So if, if, if somebody was to tell me that we knew, everybody knew that the, like the way in was happening was a matter of public record, there was just no point. You know, what happens then to a boxing match? Do you send people out there? What's the point? No, it, it, it is a misconcentration of resources to have your people chasing every time criminals go from A to B. You'll be at nothing. It's selective operations. And a way in was never going to be a selective. Now, if there was intelligence, there was going to be a shootout. That's a different ballgame. But there wasn't. And there was absolutely nobody had any idea. And if the criminals had no idea, we certainly had no idea. So did, would you and your other management have been frustrated by the, not, maybe not armchair criticism, but criticism by people outside the force of, of, the, of, of there being no guardie there? Yeah, people would automatically say, there should be guards there. Why should there be guards there? And, and if they move down the road and go on a session in the pub, should we put guards outside that too? These are people, this isn't, you know, this isn't a couple of guys coming in over from Colombia to a meeting in a hotel. That's a different ballgame. These are people coming over to meet their mates. They do it every weekend. They do it every couple of weeks. They do it quite regularly. They come to see girlfriends and friends, business associates, fellow criminals. They come to party. They come to have meals in Italian restaurants. They come to do lots and lots of things. And not just them, but other important criminal groups do that. So what would you, would you put? Would you put guards there? For what purpose would you put guards there? No. Would you put guards if they came over covertly or they sent a courier over? Yeah. It depends. It depends on the operation. It depends what you're going to get out of it. And you have to deploy, deploy resources with that in mind strategically. That, that's a really, that's the best explanation I've heard of it. I have to say. No, no Michael, look, I've kept you for a long time. Can I just ask you very briefly, you left the guards in 2017 and you became head of a group called Maoc N which is uh, yeah. in layman's terms, which is the European Union's anti-drug smuggling organization, which tries to stop drugs coming from South America, reaching Europe. Was that uh, yeah. a totally different ballgame for you? Was that even a higher level what you were doing, than what you were doing in the guards? The Maritime Analysis Operations Centre is a centre based in Lisbon, Portugal, 
uh, that represents seven European countries. And what, basically what it does is it's what they call a fusion centre where you where you work with law enforcement and, and military and target vessels bringing drugs to Europe. It's the front line, I suppose, of, 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 of law enforcement for Europe, uh, working in close cooperation with the navies, in particular the Irish Navy, and uh, we would intercept vessels coming from South America, bringing tons of drugs to Europe for the various cartels. At the end of 2022, I think we had intercepted 23 vessels uh, with a total value of just over 4 billion euros worth of drugs. So sizable seizures, um, sizable effects on, on cartels of all nationalities. And we work closely with the, we have the DEA with us as well. We work closely with the Drugs Enforcement Agency and all of the other international um, agencies. So it was, I suppose, coincidental that I was working, or fate, maybe that I was working at that level at drugs. And um, it, was, it was quite interesting and quite challenging. I did that for four years. And was it an eye-opener just to see the scale of it? Yeah, I think it was an eye-opener for everyone to see the scale of it. There was lots of eye-openers. We had a situation where um, at one stage we caught a submarine, as well as semi-submersible. It wasn't quite submarine, but it, it travelled for 23 days from the Amazon with three men on board and three and a half tonnes. And we, it, it, it was very difficult to detect. But, it, you know, naval people told us it couldn't be done. You couldn't get a... A lot of semi-submersibles are caught down in South America heading up to North America two, three days trips maybe, and they're intercepted by, by the Coast Guard and that. But some of them get through. But we had feelings that that they were coming to Europe, but they, we were told it couldn't, it couldn't possibly have a vessel big enough or powerful enough and have enough fuel, but this one had. And we intercepted it off the coast of Galicia in northern Spain. So it was, yeah, that was an eye-opener. It just shows you the lengths. We also deal with aircraft. We, we, we seize the number of aircraft, sort of small aircraft, hopping from continent to continent and, and, and flying then into Europe. So, we, yeah, we, it's, 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 it's a busy spot. Um, but you have to remember there's tons of cocaine in South America and there's a huge market in Europe. And South America are feeding that market. And um, there's more and more ships coming. And it, would, you, would you think that Europe is the biggest market for cocaine? You know, somebody said, and I, I would well believe it, there's Europe, Europe, there's, they say there's more cocaine coming to Europe than there is to North America. And the prices are better in Europe. The only place the prices are better than Europe is Australia. It's a huge consumer base in, in Europe young population, not just young people, older people are using it too, but there's plenty of money in Europe to spend on cocaine. And South Americans see that, the drug dealers in, in Europe see that. And the unfortunate thing about cocaine is, unlike the other drugs, unlike hash and unlike, unlike heroin, it's the fuel that um, drives and grows organised crime. You know, I see back over the years, you'd see guys who were into robbing houses and robbing cars. Now they're selling a couple of kilos of coke and they're driving around the big BMWs. The same on a, on a global level, you will see it in, in Europe. It's fast cash 
to a consumer base and there's low risk in it. You know, you get you get a couple of kilos and you get a few phone calls and a lot of criminals, even in, you'll see it in Ireland, a lot of the criminal gangs are gone from robbing banks, robbing security vans, and they are in the coke business. And it is what drives it and it's, what's, it's what makes the profits. Do you see the war, what we call the war on drugs, do you see it ever ending? Is it going to be an unending war? You know, people call it the war on drugs. It, it is, it'll go on and on. There's nothing that will stop drug use and drug importation. The war on drugs can certainly limited it's the war on drug use you can limit the supply of drugs coming in but it's it's what is also needed is education people being told look and it's very difficult to tell some young engineer who's taken coke at the weekend who's far more qualifications than you and maybe smarter than you and it's difficult to tell him drugs are bad for you and um, there's that element of it you know so as long as there's consumer bases people will buy drugs and the knock-on effect is it will grow criminal empires and undermine society. There's no quick fix. The war on drugs is um, is here to stay, but drugs are here to stay. And drugs in society and how they rip at the fabric of society is here to stay. So it's just, it's an unfortunate fact of life. And what would you say to people who, who say, you know, the war on drugs has failed and it is time to legalise or to decriminalise drugs? Well, it, that's a, that's a cop out, you know. What is the answer then? Let everybody bring over the coke, um, let let them bring in hash and let them sell heroin. The war on drugs was never designed to stop drugs being used. Um, it's part of a system to try and minimise drugs. It's a war on organised crime. You know, if you take drugs out of the equation in the morning, you will still have organised crime. They will still be kidnapping and robbing banks. I suppose one of the one of the best one of the best examples I can give. I was in, I, I was working in drugs when the head shops were around. We had ten or fifteen head shops in Ireland. Some of them running twenty four seven. They were selling all sorts of mad powders. We had, we had drug addicts calling to the drug squad, telling us you want to close that shop down. They're selling powders and, you know, it's driving people mad. And we had young people. We were young school kids. We had people buying it, and we used to put guards outside the place trying to dissuade people because it wasn't against the law it wasn't illegal because some of them powders effectively weren't mentioned on the schedule under the health act for want of a better term and we were frequently being told by young people buying it well if it's not illegal it's not harmful and um, you could see the floodgates open with young people taking these drugs if you legalize or decriminalize drugs whichever you want to do there's absolutely one fact that's that's rest assured the consumer base the number of people using drugs will multiply there are thousands of people who don't use drugs because it's against the law they're afraid of the criminal sanction there are some countries like i mentioned earlier the netherlands is about was a basket case the netherlands did that back in the day and if they could turn it back they would you let the genie out of the bottle there's no going back you know People often say, oh, look at the Portuguese example. Well, I worked four years in Portugal. They had a very draconian system because they had a dictatorship. And after that, they brought in a new system 10, 15 years after the dictatorship. And I actually worked back in 94, 95. I was on secondment and I worked with the Portuguese police. You now have a system where, um, you know, if you're caught with a small amount of drugs, you can go and see this committee. You don't go to court. You go and see the committee and the committee say, look, hey, don't be doing that and come back to us again, will you? 
just trying to do it again. So what's the knock-on? Now, that sounds like a great system. We might do that. What's the knock-on? Well, the knock-on effect is the police aren't stopping people smoking. Hush. Why? Why bother? You're going to go and see a couple of two people sitting in an office and they tell you don't do it again. And why am I spending my time? So drug use, soft drug use, if there is such a thing, has multiplied. And, and there's no easy fix. Oh, that war on drugs isn't working. Well, have you got a better solution? You want to legalize everything. Well, that's great, you know, but that is not going. And so we said, what about best international practice? I've spent 45 years in law enforcement. I've worked all over the globe. If there's international best practice, I haven't seen it. I wish somebody showed me where it is because it isn't out there. There is no country who has it right. And believe it or believe it not, and there's a tendency in this country that you have to look to the UK, you've got to look to the States, I'm sure they're better. The Misuse of Drugs Act, 77 and 84. Are, you know, they're well thought out pieces of legislation. You get caught with drugs, you can get an adult caution. You go to court, you might be told to put money in the poor box. Nobody goes to jail if it's the sixth or seventh time with hash. It is seen as a deterrent carrot and stick approach. People using heroin, the case is normally put back for a year to see where they go or a couple of months probation report and to see if they will get treatment. You know, it can't be any fairer than that. And you know, it works. It absolutely, that absolutely, in, in the heroin side of things, it absolutely works. But there's a tendency to knock what we have. What we have is very effective. Now, that's just, that's just my opinion. So what you're saying is in 50 years' time, there's going to be a Mick Sullivan talking to a Mick O'Toole about their careers in crime journalism and, and anti-drugs activity. This war is going to keep on going for a long, long time. Yeah, it's going to keep on going. It's, it's, and that's, it's, it's the way, it's part and parcel of life. And um, we have to minimise drug use, however we do it. And it's, it's, it's a number of things. It's, it is drug treatment, it is education, those three pillars, and it is law enforcement, you know. Michael, that was an absolutely fantastic interview and I really, really enjoyed it. And thanks a lot for your time. You're very welcome.